Hello America, yes, your host Mark, and this is the Daily Answer. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And over the years, I've run into people, even some professed believers, who do not like that passage. Sometimes people will say, well, that's impractical. Uh, we're each going to come to the text with various preconceived ideas or prejudices that we cannot remove. The idea that we're all born or we're, we come into a family and we're given a pair of colored glasses and we can never take them off. And that a unity based on the text of scripture, or you might say unity based on doctrine, is impossible. And they might cite all the examples of issues that believers have disagreed over here and there, but none of that disproves the truthfulness and usefulness of this text. You know, there's a lot of marriages that you could cite failed marriages, but none of that proves that marriage itself is a failure. Even failed marriages among believers do not discount the reality and the truthfulness of the passages in Ephesians 5, 22 to 23, husband to love his wife as Christ loves the church, or the truthfulness of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, that their fellow heirs that a husband is to give honor to his wife as a fellow heir of the grace of life and dwell with her according to knowledge. Just because there's a number of people that either ignore or mess up those verses doesn't mean that the verses aren't true. Because when people apply the verses, the verses work. And so, yeah, you could, there's a tremendous a lot amount of division in the religious world but it does not mean that 1 Corinthians 1.10 is not true or could not be a reality. I mean, there's, there's going to be a number. You could also cite all the examples of professed believers that were bad examples and hypocrites and lukewarm. But none of that proves that you cannot be a faithful Christian. So human failure, human failure never disproves the truthfulness of the text. Also, I find I, I find the attitude of if we're going to dismiss that verse as being unbelieving, wait a minute, are we going to believe what the Holy Spirit says or what we think? Dangerous and naive. The Holy Spirit gives us a very noble and meaningful goal in this verse. And that goal has created amazing congregations and Christians who are honest with the text of Scripture, who put Scripture ahead of their personal desires, their likes, their wishes, their preconceived ideas, and their dislikes. What people need to realize is that without such a high and noble goal, that is, believe the truth, practice the truth, say the truth. You become aimless, rootless, and confused. 
If you don't elevate God's truth and its pursuit over everything else, yeah, it's going to take a lot of work to make this verse a reality. But making a good marriage a reality takes a lot of work, and building a faithful Christian life takes a lot of work. Anything worthwhile takes a lot of work. And in the at the end of the day, you're going to work a lot harder. There's going to be far more serious consequences if you ignore the passage. If you don't elevate God's truth and its pursuit over all other considerations, you're going to find yourself forever mired in, in just the winds of change and, and the winds of one false doctrine after another. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of man, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. What I have often found is that individuals that tend to want to downplay 1 Corinthians 1.10 and to really water it down, well, really don't need to believe the same thing. Mm, sounds like the verse is saying that when it comes to truth. Years later, often I will find them in a condition where they don't know what they believe, where they're just at the mercy of whatever cultural winds are blowing, that they're just following the ways of the world and they're being molded and conformed by the world and less and less they know what's true and more desperately do they try to reach out and grab these fleeting human temporary ideas. My wife and I have traveled across America, about 45 states, 65,000 miles. We have visited over a hundred churches of Christ in that time. And 1 Corinthians 1.10 is often de demonstrated in what we've seen. Demonstrated, lived out, applied. You know, there's no central headquarters or world headquarters or human head or governing body that keeps the Church of Christ as revealed in Scripture together. Each congregation is self-governing, 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 through 3, by its own elders. The only head of the church is Jesus, Ephesians chapter 1, 20 through 23. And our standard of authority is his word as revealed in the New Testament. John chapter 12 and verse 48, the scriptures, that's our final authority. And the church is not given any sort of elitist class of interpreters. All of us are told to read and understand. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. And there is a real doctrinal unity out there among God's people. Not all congregations. But we have been to so many congregations that we've shown up don't know really anybody there. We, we, we've never sat down and studied. We've never sat and studied under, you might say, the same evangelist or teacher or etc. Um, but we have come to the exact same conclusion or application by our own independent study of all sorts of passages. 
You know, the gospel is for all. Mark 16, 15, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. And it's sent to all nations and people in all the nations can understand about. That's one of the things that's made very clear in scripture is that God's word is understandable to the common man. Ephesians 3, verse 4, Paul said, when you read, and he's simply talking to the members, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And the first century churches were filled with people from not just one culture and not just one background. Man, all sorts of cultures and backgrounds of people that became Christians. I mean, there, there, there were people that, there were Jewish people out of a Jewish culture that became Christians and of a pagan culture and of all sorts of different, all sorts of different false religions. And you find that in the early churches, just this wide array, this tremendous diversity and variety of people from different cultural backgrounds. Who had all submitted to Jesus as the final authority in their lives? And they have unity. They believe the same thing. They practice the same thing. And when they don't, like in Corinth at times, they're told to believe the same practice, the same thing. In fact, they're told what to believe and what to practice. They're told how to get back on track. The, the, the pattern that you find in the New Testament um, is clear, it's understandable, and it also transcends time and culture. And, and we know that from a number of passages that would say like, um, Galatians chapter five, works of the flesh. You, you, you commit any of these sins, you live in any of these sins and you're not going to heaven. Chapter five, verse 21 or book of revelation. You know, these things will condemn you at the last day, no matter when the last day is, is that the last day might be 2000 years from now in a completely different culture and time and place, but sin is still sin and truth is still truth. Jesus' statement in John 12, 48, the word I spoke, the word that Jesus spoke while he was upon the earth is what will judge us in the last day, even if the last day doesn't show up for thousands of years. What he said was timeless. Now, I know there are people and congregations who have departed from God, but their departure and the attempt to justify it stand as proof that they do understand the text, that they do see the pattern. Because you cannot argue against anything if you can't see it. In order to argue against something, you have to understand it. You have to be able to see it. Or it's just nonsense to you. And you, know, you can't really formulate an argument against just pure nonsense because, well, where do I start? You know, if there's no footholds, <laughs> there's no edge to it. Okay, good luck on that one. You see, every argument against patterns such as the plan of salvation, there's a definite pattern in the New Testament. Whether it's in the Gospels, we have here in the Gospel, faith, repentance, we have confession and baptism mentioned in the Gospels. Primarily mentioned at the end of the Gospels in what we would call the Great Commission like Mark 16, 15 and 16, uh, end of Luke chapter 24, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. 
But we have that same pattern duplicated in the book of Acts, a book of conversion. So people hear the gospel, they believe it, they're convicted, they're told to repent or they change their lives. Um, and they're baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That's the last step before forgiveness. And that's true in Acts 2.38. And that is true in Acts 22.16. That's true in Acts chapter 18, verse 8. That's, and it's true in the epistles as well. That prior to baptism, you're dead in sin. It's only after baptism that you, you arise and walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6, 3 through 5. And here's something I've noticed that let's say I'm talking to somebody about baptism and, and they're saying, well, do you have to be baptized to be saved? And I just say, hey, read Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And if they quickly respond, well, that's just your interpretation. No, I didn't say anything. I didn't add any comments. I didn't add any interpretation or commentary. You just read the text. And guess what? You immediately understood what the text was teaching. And your quick response of that's just your interpretation tells me, one, you understood it. You understood it completely. You understood that, yes, you need to be baptized to be saved. And number two, but you don't want to do that. You're not willing to submit to that. You don't agree with that. And that's why, that's why there are many churches out there that do not follow the Bible pattern, that, that there are many professed believers out there that don't follow what God says. And that's why there is division in the religious world, not because of the text, that it's not understandable or it's not clear or it's too hard to obey. But people read the text and say, mm, I'm opting out. Mm, I don't agree with that. Uh, I want to do something else instead. That's the root of division. And that's rebellion. That's also pride and arrogance as if I get to make up the rules as if I have a better idea than the God of heaven about something. So the fact that people recoil against 1 Corinthians 1.10, it's read and then someone immediately puts up their hand and says, well, no, look at all the division we have and starts making all these arguments why that verse is not workable. Well, first of all, they perfectly understood what the verse was requiring. And instead of submitting to it and say, okay, that's what that verse requires. We all speak the same thing, practice the same thing. We all follow truth. Paul said, what I teach in one church, I teach in every church. It's, it's the same standard. All right. Each congregation was not allowed to kind of come up with their own version of Christianity. And for centuries, believers and entire congregations have practiced the text. Just because a number have not doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it's not workable. You know, the real problem is not that the verse is unworkable. Because if you're going to say that verse is unworkable, then what about the verses about marriage? What about the verses on parenting? What about the verses on fleeing fornication or keeping yourself pure or um, 
only dwelling on what is true or taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. See, that's why it's dangerous. If we start going down this road that that verse is unworkable, well, for convenience sake, what other verses are unworkable? Yeah, the verse takes a lot of work. The verse is hard. The work is the verse is going to demand a lot of honesty of you and me. Yeah. And the verse is going to require some uncomfortable conversations as we try to work out, okay, what does this text say that we're talking about? All right. And some hard choices are going to have to made be made. Will I side with truth? All right. But that's true about any verse in the Bible. Do not be someone who's just looking for the easy easy peasy verses, the low-hanging fruit, which I'm not sure if there's any low-hanging fruit in the Bible now that I think about it. I think every verse in the Bible, well, every verse in the Bible is, is going to require honesty of you, basic honesty, not only that, and unselfishness. So the, the real issue is not that the text is unworkable. The real issue is not that we all come to the text with different ideas. The real problem is the unwillingness to do what the text says, to put our opinions aside, which we can. And we do that all the time. We do that all the time. And submit to the final authority on the matter that we bow to need to Jesus. Well, this has been Mark for The Daily Answer. We'll see you in the funny papers. <laughs>